I remember I was about seven years old, I believe, and um, we lived in a little house so we could hear each other in the, in the bedrooms no matter what was going on. And so I was laying there crying, and um, it was, I was crying because I felt guilt. I felt guilt over sin. I don't remember if it was a specific sin or if it was just generic. I felt guilt. And so I was crying, and um, my mom heard it, so she came in and said, what's the matter? And I, I told her what was going on. And she very simply said, well, the only way to have that guilt dealt with is to trust that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin when he died on the cross. Very simple gospel message. And I, I said, okay, I believe that. And she said, would you like to to trust Christ now? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, let's do that. Let's show by praying. And so I prayed, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty, and I need your forgiveness. Now, nothing radical happened that night. No radical, charismatic experience happened in my life. I did go to sleep, so maybe, maybe that's uh, the peace of the Spirit of God. Uh, maybe it was just I got that off my chest. I don't know, but I went to sleep, and then my life was... Uh, I don't know how different it was because it was so young, but I do know that from that point on my life, I see evidence of walking with the Lord, trusting the Lord, growing in the Lord. And so I believe that's when I became a follower of Christ. I was justified by faith in Christ alone. I remember uh, my daughter, MC, who I call MC, my wife to her chagrin. She likes to call her Morgan Catherine and... um, but I have the mic, so um, we're going to call our MC. And uh, MC um, and I were going through a booklet that's 10 Gospel Truths. And um, basically, I said, let's go through one a week. So it took about 20 weeks. And so we were doing one every week or so. And about midway through, it starts to deal with sin and the personal offense that that is to God. And it teaches you at the beginning of the book that when your children start to grasp this concept, let them let them deal with it. Don't, don't protect them from it, that that's how the gospel works. And then you have to find, you have to realize you need a savior before you trust in a savior. And so uh, we probably were getting to those stages where we're reading about that, but it was probably about a week delay because it wasn't on my mind when she woke up one night very upset. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I don't know, something's wrong. And I said, well, did you have a nightmare? No, did you do something specific you're feeling bad about? Did you lie to me? You know, what happened, you know? And so we started working through it, and she says, I don't know. And I said, the Lord just kind of, I think it was the Lord just gave me this. I said, well, do you think the Lord's trying to say something to you? And she looked at me, yes. I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, uh, let's go to our booklet. And so we started reading the booklet, and it was basically more uh, accountability for, I said, you know, your only hope is to trust Christ um, as the only hope for righteousness, to forgive you of your sins. And so... I was careful. I didn't want to close the deal too quickly just because she was having an emotional response. I wanted her to think about it and come to that conclusion that she needs Christ. And so I let her go to bed after she had, you know, said, yes, I realize I need Christ. And we prayed something. It wasn't asking God to forgive her yet. It was just, Lord, help her see her need for Christ. So she went to bed. That's what I thought. That's all I thought that had happened that night until later we're talking and she's telling someone or I learned somehow through what she said that, she had trusted Christ as Savior that night. 
And of course, my godly spiritual leadership was, what? I didn't, wait, I'm supposed to lead you through that, you know? You weren't supposed to do that without me. But anyway, once I got over myself, I was like, that is wonderful, Morgan Catherine. And so she came to the point where she trusted Christ. Now, thinking back in your own life, when can you remember that? Can you remember that time? Has there been a time where you can say, I remember that? Might have been at a coffee shop uh, with someone, a godly friend, telling you about Jesus, or it might have been uh, at the end of a confirmation, or it might have been um, kneeling with your parents at the bed. Can you remember back, just take a second and think back, when you said, I think that's when I first trusted Christ as my only hope for righteousness. Now, to continue the analogy, this did not happen. The rest of this is fictional. But imagine if my daughter, whom I love dearly, went... I love both my daughters dearly. Went, one of them went to uh, camp or something. Got, got some influence somewhere else, which happens. And she came back and says, Dad, I, I, don't, I don't know that I really am right with God. And they, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, I, I, I haven't memorized enough scripture. Um, I haven't studied the word as much as I'd like to. Or I'm, I'm not perfect. There's things I've done that I'm not proud of. And I would say, well, who have you been talking to? That's the first thing that I'd, I'd say, who have you been talking to? Because I would know that does not mean that. And so if she was an adult child or an adult person that I loved... I might be like, are you stupid? What are you talking about? Do you not remember what we've been through? Do you not remember all that God did that night and that time? Who has bewitched you? And that's what Paul's doing in our text today. In Galatians 3, 1 through 5, Paul says... You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to know. The only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who provides you with a spirit and work miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Father, help us to understand your scriptures this morning. Our only hope this morning is that your spirit guides us to understand the truth of your word and it changes us. Otherwise, it's just people talking. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. To understand the scene that's going on, I want to just kind of remember back, kind of like we remembered back to when we trusted Christ. Let's remember back to when these Galatians trusted Christ. And we know these things not from outside the Bible. We know these things from Acts. 
In the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, it's a, a medical doctor who did a careful study of history and, and all the events surrounding the gospel, the, the events where Christ came, he, was die, he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose from the grave, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and this church happened. This whole movement of Christianity happened, and he recorded it in great detail. And what we see is that Paul and Barnabas come up to this area called Galatia. This letter is called Galatians because it's... Paul's writings to these churches in the Galatian area. And what happened was Paul and Barnabas came in preaching Christ crucified. And that's the way it's described in the scriptures is the content of their message just summarizes this, Christ crucified. In fact, in verse 1, you see he says, Who has bewitched you before whom eyes before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He sees his own gospel preaching to the Galatians as a vivid portrayal of the crucifixion crucifixion of Christ. That was the sum content of his message. They weren't at the foot of the cross physically, literally seeing the crucifixion of Christ. They were at the foot of his preaching, literally hearing and seeing a portrayal of the content of his message was Christ was crucified for your sins and that alone produces righteousness. Trust in Christ. Don't trust in yourself. That's the good news, he says. And so we see in Acts, his sermons, we see sampling sermons, and they're powerful sermons if you read them. What they did as they preached, Peter preached here, Paul preached there. What they did is they said, hey, get out your Old Testament, Jews. Get out your Old Testament and look at these Hebrew scriptures. They are pointing to one who will come. And that one who will come will be this anointed one. In Hebrew, that word is, he is a Messiah. In Greek, that same word is Christ. And so they were longing and awaiting for this Messiah or this Christ who would come and take away the sins of the world and and bring about the kingdom of God. And Paul and Peter in their different locations came and said, that one, all of the Old Testament, points to Jesus. And when it said he would suffer like the lambs that were slaughtered, he was suffered and he died as the Lamb of God on the cross. And he has risen from the grave. He is the Messiah. He is the one son of God in flesh. And he has paid the price for your sins. And they have these appeals that are just powerful at the end of their sermons. That have these uh, strong appeals that said things like this. He said, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain. God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he, Jesus, has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. No word of the law. Refreshing, forgiveness comes Trusting in this one, his name is Jesus. He's the Christ that the scriptures point to. In Paul's sermon, he concluded, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him, forgiveness, is, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed. Listen to this. Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed Through the law of Moses. 
So do you hear his appeal? These powerful sermons they preached was trust in Christ. He frees you from sin. He frees you from all the things, the sin, the wrath of God, do sin, all the things that the law could not free you from. Trust only in Christ. And they got saved in droves. Thousands upon thousands came to faith. The history of God's plan had culminated to this point where Christ died. He satisfied the sin debt that had to be paid. The wrath of God was not just holding out here. It was poured into Christ and dealt with. So that now God, instead of dwelling out there as a pillar of fire... If you read in the Old Testament, God's presence is pictured as fire, dangerous fire. If you get too close to this fire, you burn, you're incinerated. He was the burning bush. He was the pillar of fire that guided God's people from a distance. He was the fire on Mount Sinai that when people came too close, they were incinerated. This God, this fire, because Christ came and dealt with sin... In Acts 2, begins to dwell on the head and inside every single person. And instead of killing them, it brings them to life. That's a powerful experience. These people who've been living by the law, this this God removed religions, distancing them, and the law is on stone tablets. Now God is this fiery presence in their midst, and it's unmistakable. And Paul comes in to this area called Galatia, and he says, trust Christ, they trust Christ, and they burn with life to the glory of God. And so we see it's a powerful experience and the reactions are are violent, if you will. In Acts 14, we see the surrounding scenes of, of when Paul preached the gospel. It says Paul and Barnabas spent a long time in the Galatian region speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was, listen to what the Lord was doing, who was testifying to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. God was doing amazing work saying, this gospel is true. Watch what happens when people get the gospel. But the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentile and Jewish unbelievers, they tried to mistreat And to stone them, they became aware of it and they fled into various regions where they continued to preach the gospel. So what we see in Acts and Luke's record of these events, that four things happened. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, apart from works, is how you're justified with God. It's how you're declared innocent with God. They preached Christ crucified. Number two, people believed. And number three, amazing signs and wonders were performed by the Holy Spirit. And number four, those believers were persecuted greatly. So it's an amazing reactionary scene where you were with Christ and he set you on fire to the glory of God or you're against Christ and you're trying to put the fire out. All of this because of one message. You are saved by grace. Your obedience does nothing 
with your standing with God? Do you feel the reaction in your heart when I say that? Your obedience does nothing to affect your right standing with God. You have to trust Christ to be made right with God. You do not have to obey to be right with God. Do you feel a reaction in your heart? I'll come back to that. So we see that Christ is being preached. People are getting saved. The Spirit is moving powerfully and, re, and reacting violently. Unbelievers are reacting violently to those who believe. And then something happened. Someone comes along into Galatia. Paul's moved on now. He's established his church. He's like, you got it? You got it? Okay, I think you got it. I'm going to move on now. I'm going to preach the same. We're going to do this all over again over here. And then he gets word. What? What? They're thinking they got to turn to the law? What? Are you stupid? That's what foolish Galatians literally means. You stupid idiots. There's the Phillips translation that says, you stupid idiots. You have believed this idiotic message. I'm like, that's hard, dude. That's cold. But he's saying, how could you be witched like this? Bewitched literally carries the idea of being cast under a spell. Their craftiness of their words. or They're saying, listen, listen, Christ is good. Christ is right. He's the Jewish Messiah. Trust Christ. But you also have to obey to be right with God, to be right with God's people. If you just trust Christ and you're not circumcised and you're not keeping the Jewish dietary laws, then... You can't be right with God and you can't be right with us. Just do this. I, I, I agree Christ is important. He is, he is the Messiah. You can't be saved without Christ, but you also have to obey. And Paul reacts violently. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You remember, I preached one thing, Christ crucified. Now, if God forbid, if God calls me away to another church, I hope and pray that I'm here the rest of my life. But if God says, you're going to start a new church here. And I'm praying about Norris Ferry, near and dear to my heart. Poured our lives into this and seen God do awesome things on that message, Christ crucified. And I get wind that someone's starting to tamper with that. I'm going to be like, you stupid idiots. How could you do that? Who's doing this? Who's saying, who's saying this to you? You know that's not true. And I would start to do what Paul did. Paul does the Socratic method. If you've ever heard of the Socratic method, that is asking questions to reveal the fallacy of one's logic. For instance, you say there's no absolute truth. That's, that's what everyone says today. You don't tell, tell me what's right and what's wrong. Don't tell me there's one way. There's no absolute truth. There's plenty of different opinions. That works for you. But don't tell me that there is only one way. There is no absolute truth. I'd say, let me ask you something. Was your statement that there is no absolute truth an absolute statement? Huh? You just, I just want to make sure you understand. Is that statement an absolute declaration of truth? Let me ask you something else. If you were standing on a building and you said, I don't believe in gravity, and you jump, 
What's going to happen? Okay, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. So the point is, asking questions to reveal the fallacy of their logic. And that's what Paul does here. He says, what? Are you kidding me? The law? And he starts to ask questions. We're going to look at these questions. Look at verse 2. The first question that Paul asks to reveal to them the foolishness of their logic. He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And see, Paul's saying, do you remember? Do you remember when you were set on fire for God? Do you remember how powerful that was? Do you remember all that, that happened that day? Do you remember when we were sitting in the coffee shop and it clicked and everything changed? Do you remember that moment? Do you remember when you finally said, you mean I don't have to be good enough? You mean I can rest assured right now that if I were to walk out and get hit by a Mack truck, I'm good with God because I trust solely in Christ. Wow. He's saying, do you remember that? Now, when that happened, was it based on faith in Christ or was it based on the law? And they're going, oh, yeah. That was based on the law. But he goes beyond that. He's saying, do you remember how you got the Spirit of God? The Scriptures tell us, you get the Spirit of God when you trust in Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's in several places in scriptures. The scriptures tell you that whether it was a radical experience where you were set on fire, or if it was just a simple childlike faith kneeling by your bed. What happens when you genuinely trust in Christ alone is the Spirit of God, the fiery, holy, magnificent, glorious presence of God comes into you because now He dwells in you. Not a tabernacle like the Old Testament because sin hasn't been finally dealt with. But now that Christ dealt with sin, the fiery presence of God is not out there. It's in here. And he says, I set you on fire for me. Now, this week, Paul's talking about that experience of that. The next two sermons, Paul says, maybe you don't have a powerful experience. Maybe you need to just know that's what God has said over and over. And that's what he does in the next two passages we'll look at in the next two weeks. But he's saying, do you understand that you are filled with the Spirit of God when you trust in Christ by faith. And I mentioned nothing of obedience to the law when that happened. That's the first question he asks. And the second question we find in verse 3. And it continues the logical progression. He says, are you so foolish having begun, begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is either saying here, look, you know from the, you knew from the beginning that you were perfected by the Spirit, and now you're trying to think that you're perfected by the flesh. That's not true. You're only perfected by the Spirit. 
Or he's saying, you think that you started and you were perfected by God, you were justified by, by spirit, but now you think you've got to be perfected. The, this process has to be finished off by works of the law. In either case, he's saying, look, you're adding something to Christ to be right with God. He would say to us, you know, when you got saved as a, as a, at that coffee shop, you got it. You're right with God. Now, why do you think that you're going to have to do something to be right with God? You already are right with God. And it was based on Christ, not your performance. He'd say, what are you thinking? It's from start to finish. It's faith in Christ. And the spirit testifies to you of that truth. Do you have the Spirit? The Spirit testifies that you are right with God. And that's what he's pointing to. The Spirit was yours when you believed, and he's yours forever. And that's what you need to be right with God. And it comes only by faith in Christ. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, the powerful displays of the Spirit of God when Paul preached was for one purpose. It would lead you to trust in the power of God for all of your life and not in the power of man. Listen to what he says. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on human wisdom of men, but on the power of God. (laughs) My first sermon... I was over on staff at Broadmoor Baptist and Chuck Pusho, a good friend of mine at the time, came in and says, you want to preach? Uh, okay. Wednesday night. Write it down. Oh, okay. So it set my world on fire, you know. I'm like, oh my gosh. Wednesday night sermon there is 600 people, you know. I'm like, oh man. So I just study and study and I write and I write. And I don't know. It was, it was awful. And I stood in front of the mirror and I preached it 5,000 times. Chuck calls me the night before. Hey, how you doing? I was like, oh, I'm good, man. He says, you ready to roll? I was like, yeah. He says, well, I just got one piece of advice for you. All right, what's that? He says, when you're done, you're done. Huh? He says, just when, you, when you're done with what you got to say, just be done. I don't care how short or how long it is. Don't worry about that. If you're t- when you're done, you're done. Don't try to stretch it. Don't try to shrink it. I was like, dude, I'm okay. I know how long it is. He said, how long is it? I said, 16 minutes. He's like, you know that. I was like, oh, man, I've preached it 5,000 times. I've timed it. It's 16 minutes. He said, good. Well, just remember what I said. Okay. So I get up there that next night. Eight minutes. I'm done. You know, I sat down, and they all said, that's the best sermon I've ever heard because it's so short. And let me tell you, if someone trusted Christ that night, It had nothing to do with me. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, look, when I was there, I'm this little guy. My knees were knocking. I was scared to death. I'm looking over my shoulder for someone who's about to throw a rock at me. 
He says, I was preaching in fear and trembling. And look what God did. It had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with you keeping the law. It was one thing, the power of God that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you think you need the law now? Are you kidding me? Who has bewitched you? This is stupid. Technically, he said, you're stupid. I just have a hard time saying that. So, the third question he gets to is in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it indeed was in vain? The word suffer can be translated experience. Did you experience all that for nothing? That's what he's saying. He's saying, do you remember when you were set on fire for God. And do you remember that even though your family and your friends and your loved ones and your neighbors mocked you and maybe you were imprisoned, maybe you were persecuted, you suffered for the gospel. You were comforted by the Spirit of God in the midst of that persecution and you stood boldly grounded and anchored by the Spirit of God. Was all that in vain? And now, and now after all that, you're going to think you've got to add obedience to Christ to be right with God. Are you serious? In fact, Paul writes in Romans 5, One through five, he writes about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us in suffering. Listen to what he says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's salvation. Therefore, having been right with God by faith alone, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand. We were justified by faith in Christ, made right with God, and now we stand each day in His grace by faith, not obedience. And then he says, and we exult in the hope of the glory. That's the the future promises that are made clear in the Scriptures. I am waiting for those glorious promises that God holds out as hope for us. It's mine in Christ because the Holy Spirit holds me there and keeps me faithful and keeps me standing strong despite all the persecution. And the Spirit, he says then, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulation. Bring it on, brother. Bring it on. And he says, because knowing this tribulation brings about perseverance. And this perseverance proves my character. And this proven character produces a stronger hope A hope that will not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you trust in Christ, the Spirit of God pours the love of God 
into your heart and you say, I love God more than these people who are persecuting me. I love God so much, the suffering is worth it. Bring it on. God pours his love into your heart and says, you are my child. I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. And he says, you think you need the law? Are you serious? It's powerful. With one final question, Paul brings it home to a summary conclusion in verse 5. His fourth question, he says, So then, now let me ask you, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the only conclusion we can come to is say, Oh yeah, faith alone. This is what Paul is saying in Philippians 1, 5 through 6. He says, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. It started by faith, God working powerfully in you. He's been doing powerful things in your life by faith through the Holy Spirit. And he will finish his work by faith through the work of the Spirit. It is not by obedience to the law. So do we have time for me then to give you 11 reasons why we should obey if it has zero to do with with our right standing with God. Do we have time for that? Really fast? I got one no, I got one yes. All I need is one yes. All right. Get your pens and paper down and write this down because this is why the gospel sounds scandalous because we think, well then what, why not sin if obedience does not earn righteousness with God? <clears throat> Number one, the Holy Spirit within us produces these things to express our love for God. We obey to express our love for God. The Holy Spirit pours His love in us. Therefore, we want to obey to show our love for Him. The Holy Spirit... Listen to this if you hear nothing else. The Holy Spirit will not allow you to abuse grace... The Holy Spirit, if he is in you, will not allow you to just gleefully headlong into sin. If you are fine headlong into sin, then you better check to see if you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces within you a desire to obey because you want to show God how much you love him. Number one. Number two, you obey to keep a clear conscience. You're miserable when you sin. People filled with the Holy Spirit don't say, yeah, let's sin. They say, God, I hate sin. I hate it when I sin. 
the conscience, to keep a clear conscience. Number three, because you want to be used by God, sin disqualifies you from ministry. You want to minister for God's glory, so you say, well, I I need to live for God's glory. Number four, to bring others to the kingdom. Commands like share the gospel, make disciples of all nations, tell people about Jesus. You're not saying, well, I need to do that or God won't love me. You're saying, yes, what a glorious kingdom, what a glorious God. I want others to share in this. That's what the Spirit does in believers, to bring others to the kingdom. Number five, to receive the blessings of obedience. God has said, my abundant life, my fruit, all the things that you want in life, that you need in life, I've got them for you in this path of obedience. There is blessing in obedience. Number six, to seek the greater heavenly reward. This is not often in our thought processes, but it's biblical. The scripture says, in the future, when you get your eternal presence with the Lord, you will be rewarded based on your obedience. All that is done in faith will be rewarded. Everything else will burn away. Seek greater reward eternally. Number six. Number seven. This is strange. Write down 1 Timothy 5, 21, 1 Peter 1, 12. Strangely, it says that we obey to give angels something to glorify God about. They're like kicking back up there going, watching. Check it out. That's a good play. They're glorifying God. God, look what he did after you. What's cool? Good job. Way to go, Lord. That's weird, isn't it? They glorify God. The angels are glorifying God because of our obedience. Number eight, to enjoy the peace and assurance that comes with obedience. When you obey, it just feeds this sense of, yep, I'm right with God. Not because I obey, because this is not who I am. If it was just me, I'd slap that dude so fast. But God's producing within me a sense of, no, no. And so I'm obeying, and that says, yeah, God's living through me. Assurance is a blessing of obedience. Number nine, to enjoy the delight that obedience in itself has. It feels good to do what's right. Right is God's will. It feels good to do God's will. Number 10 and number 11, I've saved for last because they are the most confused that we mess up most often. Number 10, these, came, the, these are adapted from Grudem's systematic theology on sanctification. But here's, what he, here's how he words it. To avoid God's displeasure and discipline. Eh. I know it's almost heresy to question Grudem's wording, but I'm questioning his wording. To avoid God's displeasure and discipline. In other words, as long as we understand displeasure is not like human displeasure. Human displeasure and disappointment says, oh, you're not what I thought you were. Man, I wish you hadn't done that. That's so disappointing. I really thought you were a good kid, but... mm." That is not the way God works. God is not saying, oh, I thought you were righteous till you did that. Man, that's, that's a bummer. It's a heavenly, perfect father's love who says, listen, man, that is disappointing. That, is, that displeases me because it is harmful to you. 
That displeases that you do. Don't do that. You will injure yourself if you go and do that. And therefore, I am going to lovingly discipline you, not in anger, not in wrath, not an abusive father, but a loving, perfect father who says, I'm going to properly discipline you towards proper living because it's what's best for you. This is good for you. I love you and I want what's good for you. That's why we obey because we, we, need, we don't like dis, being disciplined. Number 10. So number 11 we, we obey to enjoy deeper intimacy with God. We obey to enjoy deep, deeper intimacy with God. Now, that's the one that people say, see, when you obey, God loves you. When you don't obey, he loves you less. That's not, that's not the way it works. When you obey, your conscience is clear. When you go out, students, when... Parents aren't around and you start blurring the lines and making decisions that you know are not what they want for you. They've set boundaries and you sneak and you get away with it as far as you know. They don't know about it as far as you know. And so, because we all do know, we hear and we see and we, you, we use technology too, by the way. And so, when you do that and you come home, hey mom, hey dad, and they're like going, huh. How's the intimacy? And why? Who changed? They're still sitting there with open arms. They're, they're like, I love you. Looking kind of dumb. Hey, hey, hey. Have a good night. It's because your conscience is, is tainted with the sin that you know. And so it hinders your ability to enjoy their unconditional love of you. And... You don't want to get disciplined. And so that's the way it works with God. Why obey? Because when you have a clear conscience, man, you you have this awesome intimacy. When the obedience is read the Bible and do these things, go to church and worship, it, it fosters an intimacy, a relationship with him that is wonderful. And that is why we obey. Now, 11 reasons. Notice what's not on the list. Not on the list. You do not earn any merit or any love or any righteousness with God when you obey and you do not lose merit, you do not lose righteousness, you do not lose love when you disobey. But when you have faith in Christ, you're filled with his love and it produces a gladful obedience. And if you find in your life a disobedience, you better make sure that it grieves you and you war against it and you seek to obey, or you need to be very afraid as to whether you have ever trusted Christ in the first place. But if we live thinking that obedience earns something with God, it ruins the joy of the gospel. And it robs you of the fuel that you need to live a life to his glory. Let's pray together.